Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Octavia Bright, and I'm here with my beloved Carrie Plitt beaming down the line from Oxford. Hi, Carrie. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm fine. I'm beaming down the line from Oxford. I don't know. Here's here's the time when I talk about spring. It's spring. Capitals. <laughs> <Thank> God. <laughs> How are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm um. I'm very excited about spring. I've seen crocuses everywhere, which is really like beyond everything I could have hoped for right now. Um, And I just got back from Paris where I was for work. And that was, uh, yeah, wonderful. You know, Paris just keeps on being Paris. (laughs) It's the best. I'm going with my parents in a few weeks. Oh, well, listen, I've got some great restaurant options for you from our, our friend Lily. Should we now discuss on the podcast while our listeners listen in? About the restaurants? Yeah. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> Do you think they'd listen, enjoy that? I went to an amazing Lebanese restaurant called Eats Time, which is a slightly weird uh, name, but the food was incredible. Okay. Maybe our listeners would I think that. we should cut that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, anyway, before we get into it, let's get business out of the way. If you like, you can support us on Patreon by subscribing at patreon.com slash litfriction. You will also get access to an extra mini-sode each month. There are now 25 waiting for you there and have the chance to suggest themes. In our latest Patreon mini-sode, we talked about beginnings in literature, our favorite openings, the curse of the cliche, and we even played an interactive game, guys, like for real. So (laughs) you should check it out. (laughs) But now back to mini-sode 37. Welcome and thanks for tuning in. The format for these mini-sodes between full shows is for the next half hour or so, we'll first have an informal conversation about the topic in hand and anything else that might come up, and then recommend some cultural things that are not books that we've enjoyed lately. That's right. And today, our theme was inspired by a recent front cover story of New York Magazine about, as they described it, how to text, tip, ghost, host, and generally exist in polite society today. So the idea behind this list, um, which I think is 140 rules, so it's like it's a very rules-heavy list, um, is that the last three years have basically completely changed the way that we live and work because of the pandemic. And, um, and kind of everyone has forgotten <laughs> how to be in society, how to be polite. So we have this new code of conduct presented to us by New York Magazine. And this got us thinking, (laughs) can you tell how I feel about that? (laughs) This got us thinking about etiquette and it got us thinking about advice more generally and how it relates to literature. So we're going to get into all of that. Um, But before we do, I do think we should talk about the New York Magazine list. Some of you might have seen it. It was doing the rounds on Twitter. If you haven't, it's worth a look because it will stir your feelings one way or another. Um, But what did you think, Carrie? Did you find the list? useful? Did you agree with it? Will you be pinning it up in your fridge and referring to it before you leave the house every morning? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous list. Some some of the rules make sense and are helpful. There's rules about tipping. That was sort of, it's interesting to think about tipping how we tip now, although obviously that's a little bit different in America. I loved the rule that it's polite to have your Zoom camera on because I really feel that, um, that unless you have a good reason not to have your camera on, you should have it on because otherwise the person talking is talking into a void. Mm, I I like the rule that you should never message someone just a K. uh, (laughs) It does feel extremely aggressive to me. Other rules only seem to apply to a very certain strata of person in New York 
like you don't have to read all of your friends' books. It's like, okay, <laughs> like not all of us are friends with multiple writers who are constantly like shoving books at us. There was also one that's like what to do if you're at dinner with a celebrity, which is like, I, that doesn't happen to me that much. <laughs> there are like multiple rules about it. I mean, babe, I don't know who you're hanging out with, but you're hanging out with the wrong people. I am, clearly. Um, And and, yeah, and then there were some rules that were just absolutely, I think, wrong. Um, Like, if you like them, text people within three hours of hanging out with them, which I find so stressful. Like, as in fancy them? No. Or just if you like somebody? If you like somebody, within three hours of hanging out with them, you have to text them to tell them how much you enjoyed hanging out with them. Mm, that seems very arbitrary. It's really arbitrary and very stressful. And I don't think is any measure of how fun an experience was. Yeah. And also I'd just like to know who came up with that rule, like three hours, not three and a half hours. Yeah. Well, (laughs) so this plays into what I think about this larger list. So that was a great segue for me, which is that the larger list I think is, is just created to be clickbait. Yeah, totally. And like, a conversation starter. Maybe that's a nicer way to say it, a conversation starter. And I think the reason why that is definitely true is that it's a mixture of of kind of rules created by a nebulous group of New York Magazine staffers and rules that are actually, that are kind of written out by contributors who are then named. And I think that three-hour rule was written by one person. So it's not as though these are like a group of like put to committee. <laughs> judges have agreed this. It's like some of them have, and then some of them are just some people's opinions. And then like Dave was like, if you don't text me within three hours, I feel offended. So I'm going to yes. make this a social rule. Exactly. Exactly. So <laughs> it's just, it's like a little all over the place, but I don't think it was meant to be, I don't know. I don't think we should take it too seriously is basically what I'm saying. And it's kind of, and, and it started our conversation about etiquette. So um, I'm I'm happy with it. I don't know. How do you feel about it? Well, yeah, I, I feel the same way, basically. And the um, that one about you don't have to read everyone's book really made me laugh because they suggested that a good way out of a sticky situation with someone whose book you have been given and you have not read, but you need to comment is to just say, what an achievement. <laughs> So passive aggressive. It is so passive aggressive. And like obviously that could apply to like someone's show or someone's album or someone's exhibition. And I tell you, like, don't ever say that to an artist of any kind. Like that's no. just no way. Can you imagine um, if I said that to you after reading your whole book? Yeah, no, but I mean, but I worse guess I if you hadn't read even read book. it at all, yeah. right? Like <laughs> yeah. if you said it having read it, I'd I'd hope you were being sincere. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, obviously the whole point is I'm not supposed to know either way whether you've read it or not, but like, it's just a very patronizing thing to say to somebody. So yeah, uh, uh, that made me laugh. But yes, I think you're right. I think it was, I think it was really genius actually, because this is an article that came out at literally the same moment that several really big media outlets in the States were tanking. And I just thought, wow, you have got to hand it to them. They know how to get their engagement up in a moment when, you know, this kind of media is on a knife edge actually it felt quite sort of like a clever maneuver. And I appreciated that. And also because I do think, you know, etiquette is, is one of those subjects. It's just never going to be a consensus. It's impossible for it to be a consensus because it means different things to different people at different stages in their life, in different locations, whatever. So it's a great way to get people arguing and bitching and getting hot and bothered about it. And also I think most people hate the 
the thought that they have accidentally humiliated themselves by doing something that they're quote unquote not supposed to do. And so when they see it written down on a list, like, oh my God, I didn't text that person within three hours. Oh my God. You know, it's quite funny to think of everyone getting agitated because obviously social norms are like to be discarded freely and at will. (laughs) Yeah. But we can get into that. I think we should. But before we do, (laughs) how about etiquette lists in general? Do you think that etiquette is something that should be spelled out like this in social norms? And do you like to read lists of etiquette? I do love to read them, I admit. Well, I love reading etiquette columns in newspapers. I have a real weakness for it. I always used to read the misconduct column in the Boston Globe magazine. Um, and like the- That's a great name. It's wonderful. For an etiquette it? column. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and even before that, I always read all of those columns. And now I, I always read the social cues column in the New York Times. And I think another version of this actually is um, Am I the Asshole on Reddit, which I'm sure we've all engaged with, um, which is just, you know, a crowdsourced version of uh, an etiquette column. I mean, I would say it's quite extreme. (laughs) (laughs) It's quite, it's like extreme etiquette, you know, it's etiquette for adults. (laughs) Yeah. Although etiquette, I think the ones that like make it onto social media are the extreme versions. And I'm sure there are a lot of am I the assholes where it's like pretty mild, but we just haven't, we're just like not Reddit, Redditors or whatever those yeah. people are called. I don't want to make a distinction between myself and people who read Reddit. I'm just saying I, I'm not hanging out on the site, you know, daily waiting for a new A A I T A. I don't <laughs> think they call it that <laughs> out loud. Um, but I admit I've never read a full book of etiquette advice and they do exist. Yeah. Mrs. Beaton, right? Mm. Yeah. And there's, um, there's like, I was reading an article in the New York Times about a new um, sort of young Chinese woman who who writes a uh, very popular sort of, she's an etiquette advisor and is coming out with a book and it's kind of a new, one of her, you know, she gives advice like, if you want to see if your breath is bad, floss your teeth and smell the floss. Oh. Anyway. I um, never thought to do that before. I know. <laughs> Me neither. Um, so maybe we should be reading these books, but. Anyway, um, I don't necessarily always agree with the columnists or the the commentator's advice, but that's part of the fun, I think, because we live in a world in which we're confronted with questions, as you say, about manners and etiquette all the time, and more deeply ethical dilemmas that have to do with social conduct. And Mm. I think that columns and books like this give us a chance to think through what we would do in those situations and what we think is right. And in in fact, what we have, have done in similar situations and, you know, this getting back to your idea that we can discard social conduct at at will. um, I don't know if I totally agree with that. I think that manners are an important part of like how we hold ourselves together as a society. And I think it's, it's more problematic when rules are portrayed dogmatically is the only way to live, um, or even worse, enforce expectations upon people that don't take into account the different cultures and social norms that people live by. That I do not endorse ever. It, and like, I do think that like social roles are often used as a means of oppression. I, I'm not on board with that. But I don't know. I think maybe you shouldn't listen to your phone at full volume 
on a crowded train. <laughs> Maybe God. that is Bring her good out. to do. I Bring I out like, cranky Carrie. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just think it's I think it's reasonable to expect that people will think about the people around them and make minor adjustments to their behavior to make life easier for other people that they're sharing space with. And I think too often that does not happen. I think that's fair. (laughs) (laughs) Imagine the mayhem of a world where everybody was listening to their music or podcast out loud on the train. No, I really get it. And I was being a bit flippant before, but I do, I think my problem with it is that I don't think that the only way to have good manners is to abide by a very specific set of rules because a lot of people aren't taught those rules. And if you haven't been taught the rules, then you don't know you're supposed to do them, but you can still be extremely polite. Like if you've never been taught not to put your elbows on the table at dinner, that doesn't make you rude if you're saying please and thank you and you're not throwing food across the room, right? So it's like, I think a lot of the time what people pin down as being social norms and rules that, you know, they're there as a way of making it easier to know supposedly sort of how to be and how to be polite. But I think that there is an enormous amount that gets transmitted outside of those rules because those rules are arbitrary and because they change from society to society. But there is such a thing as kind of warmth and kindness and politeness that you can bring to the table, even if you don't know exactly how you're supposed to behave at it. And I guess that's kind of what I mean, because I think a lot of the time it's worth asking questions about who created those social norms. And a lot of them are created by like religious leaders, you know, like it's a lot about like, it's a lot about dogma that doesn't necessarily need to apply to everybody. And neurotypical Um, people. Completely, totally. Neurotypical people. Also, a lot of that stuff becomes about class and class aspiration, and it can be extremely, um, it can be a way of creating and maintaining class division, you know? Like, I always think, you know, my parents raised me with certain conventions, like sending thank you letters or always bringing a gift if you go to stay with somebody. Um, But I've had many close friends and also partners who weren't raised with that in mind. And it's not, it doesn't make them less polite or less grateful. They just weren't educated with that particular set of norms. And they were educated with a different set of norms. And if I happen to be writing a thank you letter to someone who expects a thank you letter, then I get, you know, 10 points. And if my friend doesn't, they get docked 10 points when actually that's not, it's just not a good way of doing things. I don't think. I agree with that. Yeah. Um, I just want people to put their headphones in. That's all I want. (laughs) (laughs) And I do not want them to put their chewing gum underneath the seat. Yes. Put throw your trash away. Don't you think that's about common decency, not so much about etiquette though? Yeah. Okay. Fair. I guess so. But I think that they get, they get squished together. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. They do. They get, there's a concertina effect, but I think removal of shoes is a really interesting one because a lot of, I know lots of people that don't take off their shoes when you arrive in a house. I know lots of people who do, but obviously you go to parts of Asia and it's the rudest thing in the world you could do is to not remove your shoes at Mm. the entrance to somebody's home. And if you don't know things like that, when you go traveling, you can breach etiquette in a way that is like very serious because you're a visitor in someone else's country. And you, you know, it's, I think it's the responsibility lies with you, the traveler to work out how to behave well in that country, how to behave politely and respectfully, you know, like for example, covering your head and shoulders, if you're in a religious country where the expectation is that you'll dress modestly, or I do think 
learning the conventions around tipping wherever you're going is really important. And, you know, in America, as you kind of mentioned earlier, like it's wildly different to here. And actually it's really important that you tip over 20%, <laughs> which, whereas in France, you would never do that. So it's kind of, that kind of thing is, is, is interesting. And it's also, I think, important to, to figure out when you're traveling. Totally. Um, but then, yeah, all of the kind of minute social dance bullshit I hate. And for example, swearing, right? Like I swear freely and I don't temper my language too much unless I'm around children maybe. And I don't think I should have to, because I don't think swearing is that rude necessarily. That's like a personal thing. But let's move on from that. Cause I think you alluded to something earlier that I want to get into. There is a link between etiquette columns and this other classic of the genre, the agony aunt, which I fucking love. And <laughs> I want to know how you feel about it. Do you think about like, how do you feel about this kind of advice column thing? Yeah. I love reading advice columns. Um, yeah. Much more so than I love reading <laughs> etiquette columns. And I think there's something very comforting about them, about reading advice given to other people, basically. It, it lets us know we're not alone in our troubles. It helps us think through kind of like what I was saying before, like the ethical and emotional dilemmas that people live through every day. There is a certain amount of nosiness in it. Like it's oh, yeah. interesting to know what other people are going through. I do think that the role of agony aunt, which is a very British term that I learned when I moved here, but I love it, imbues someone with a lot of power. And I also think it's very hard to give advice when you only know what someone is writing in a letter. There's so much beyond their point of view and their, you know, the way they've chosen to express their story. Um, also, mm. I sometimes doubt how real some of these letters are. No, now, now. Mm -hmm. No, yeah. no, no. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sorry, I'm saying it. Um, and I, I do think there's a limit to how helpful advice can be, especially from a stranger. And like, I know in like depths of, I don't know, in, in, in the depths of like despair or indecision, I have sought out advice from a lot of different people. I've never written to an agony aunt, but I have certainly done my fair share of Googling and like asking friends what I should do. And do you ever ask Jeeves, Carrie? I've never asked Jeeves, but I have, you know, the like, what to do if, like, and then like big life. Yeah. <laughs> like, if you, not sure whether to move jobs or not. It's like, I don't yeah. think the internet is going to give you a good answer to this. It's like, um, my favorite one is ask Jeeves, Jeeves, am I in love? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but like, and then you see, like, first of all, during those moments, I was very impressionable and people have different advice about things. Like you see that even in, if, if there's an agony on column and people are allowed to comment on it, there are so many people who are disagreeing with the agony on or saying like, no, you should do this. No, you should do that. And I just, in times like that, sometimes I wish that I didn't have advice from anyone, but basically at the same time, there are certain advice columns that I have found extremely helpful and have actually like changed, changed my life or changed my outlook in some ways. Um, and this is, I, I feel particularly grateful to Cheryl Striad's column, Dear Sugar, which she wrote for years anonymously on the rumpus. Um, and she eventually kind of revealed who she was at the end of the run, but her 
advice is so empathetic. It's so thoughtful. It's so open. It's so personal. And in very dark moments, it really honestly made me feel like I wasn't alone. And it really helps me think through some things. And I am so grateful. And her columns were collected into a book called Tiny Beautiful Things, which, um, you know, that's, that's one way to access it, although you can also find them online. So I guess what I'm saying is I love them. I'm skeptical of them. They're also very meaningful to me. I feel like maybe that was your gateway into self-help, Carrie Claire. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew? Oh my God, Octavia, have we spoken about this lately? Because I'm a full convert to self-help. I have uh, no skepticism yes. whatsoever anymore. I'm like, give me all the books that tell me how to live my life. I need all the help I can get. She's here. She's come over the line. <laughs> Welcome. It's nice here. We know a lot of things. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, what about you? How do you feel about Agony well, on? I love Agony on columns yeah. and I read them all the time. And similarly to you, like they have had big impacts on me at times in my life where I've not known what was going on. And um, they've also been a source of great amusement and empathy and everything. I just think they're brilliant. I think they are so, so brilliant. I think they're often when they're in newspapers or online, they're free, they're open resource. Think about the number of people who get so stuck within themselves that they can't ask anybody for help. They can't vocalize that they need help. And there are just these archives and archives of other people doing the asking and the answers are available. And I just, I think that they are an incredible resource for, for human beings in general. Um, and I will have no one being snobby about them. Um, and I also think they open the door to really wonderful and quite specific type of writing a lot of the mm. time. Like at the moment, I'm, I'm always read, um, one called Leading Questions, which is in the garden. I think it's from Guardian Australia. The, the writer's called Eleanor Gordon-Smith and she's a philosopher and her answers are so, so thoughtful and compassionate and not always what you might expect. Um, she really digs into the kind of complicated tensions at the heart of the letter writer's issue. And um, and she can be quite sort of directive. And I think I just think they're brilliant. It's a wonderful voice. It's very um, there's a lot of space in it for your for your opinion as well, in a way. Mm. Um I also for years read Ask Polly, which is the yeah. writer Heather Havrileski, um, who I find very funny. You know, a lot of the time she makes me laugh in her columns. I think Dolly, um, Dolly Alderton's Dear Dolly is also brilliant. She is another um, agony aunt who responds with such warmth and openness and a lot, a lot of humor, always a lot of humor. And she's kind of a, a chronicler of modern manners as well. So I find that always very rewarding. And another one I love is called Hola Papi by Jean-Paul Brammer. And it's an LGBTQ advice column. And he is hilarious and sometimes extremely bitchy and direct, but he is also deeply, deeply tender and wise about, you know, sort of problems to do with figuring out your identity and your desires mm. and everything. And um, yeah, I think, I think he's really talented. So yeah. yeah. And podcasts are a great medium for this too, aren't they? Yeah, I was big just time. thinking maybe we should shift to being a, a call-in show. Agony aunties, would we be good agony aunts? <laughs> Probably, I would not be. I don't think. I we don't know. I, no, I think we'd be good. I think we'd be fine. <laughs> <laughs> maybe we'd have to good cop, bad cop it. Yeah, two different who would opinions. Be the good cop and who would be the bad cop? I mean, maybe we'd switch every week. Write to us, listeners, if, if you're interested in this idea. 
Yeah, send us your problems if you want to be a social experiment. Yes. We will be really gentle. <laughs> <laughs> but no, let's move let's move into novels. Because novels and etiquette have a relationship, right? Um, there is like a whole kind of genre of literature about this. So do you think that novels can tell us anything about manners, interesting things about manners and etiquette? Like, are they a useful form for this kind of conversation? Yeah, well, as you say, there's a whole genre um, called the comedy of manners, which I think is uses the rules of manners and etiquette, which as discussed are often so ridiculous to kind of send up the people who are um, adhering to them, I suppose, especially in high society. So there are classics like like Noel Coward or Oscar Wilde's plays, but like, you know, when you look up lists of comedies of manners, some people talk about the remains of the day, one of my favorite oh, novels by one of your faves. <laughs> um, which I think is true, right? Um, a lot of that novel is actually, there's a lot of humor in that novel and a lot of it is about um, people kind of stuck within social norms. And I guess the comedy of manner is kind of about the limits of etiquette and manners and what happens when certain parts of society take those rules too far. Um, but I, I think it's also a genre that is thinking about the connection between etiquette and morality. Mm-hmm. And I think we often make the mistake of lumping those two things together when they shouldn't be. Just because, as you say, you're polite within a certain code doesn't mean you're moral. Um, and and being polite or impolite does not make you, is not an ethical act, I suppose. Right. It doesn't make you good. Yeah. Yes. But yeah, I mean, of course, novels have something to say about manners, don't they? Because so, you know, especially realist novels set in a society, especially a certain milieu, which they so often are, are thinking about how we relate to each other and the, the kind of rules that we absorb and what happens when we break them, what happens when we bend them. Um, And I can't help but think of Sally Rooney, for instance, um, which I think are novels that are deeply concerned with social norms and how, how they do relate to ethical questions or don't relate to them. And people often make a link between Sally Rooney and Victorian novelists like, you know, George Eliot or Henry James, which of course, you know, the, the Victorians were obsessed with manners. And I think those novels are also obsessed with manners. Um, and that in turn makes me think about, for instance, The French Lieutenant's Woman by John Fowles, which we've talked a little bit about the show before, which is, is a novel that's a kind of meta commentary upon Victorian morals and manners. And I think is another novel that has a lot to say about etiquette and where it, where it leads us and how it constricts us. Um, and I guess that is a very Anglo answer to this question. And it's very related to my own limited reading, but I also think it makes some sense because England as a culture is particularly obsessed with rules and manners. Um, but I, I, you know, obviously every culture has its own, has its own, uh, ways of being, let's just say. Yeah. Like I was thinking, you know, Suitable Boy by Vikram Seth is all, all about etiquette and manners Mm. in the context of India and Pakistan. So yeah, I'm sure there's, I, I'm sure every culture has its perfect examples of that, right? Totally. Also, I'm thinking of some of those classic contemporary New York novels, which tend to be about white middle-class New York society or kind of aspirational New York society, like Taffy Brodesser Ackner's novel, Fleischman is in Trouble, or The Interestings by Meg Wollitzer, which both kind of send up and um, 
humor, like they, they take a kind of sideways glance at, at the things that well-heeled white people want from life. <laughs> but then I'm also thinking of the novel Such a Fun Age by Kylie Reed, which is doing something similar, but it's dealing much, much more um, deeply with race and class. And, you know, she, I remember when we interviewed her, she said that she she loved all of her characters and that's how she could write them. But she also really shows us the terrible hypocrisies folded into a lot of contemporary ideas about manners. And then um, there's also novels like Assembly by Natasha Brown, which is doing something similar, but taking it to an even more extreme place where she kind of peels back the veneer of a certain kind, again, of English manners and class-related manners to reveal this extremely dark underbelly and the kind of coldness that can lie at the heart of all of that or be hidden by it. That's a great example. And is so much in conversation with some of those novels that I was mentioning too. Yeah, completely. Absolutely. Yeah. So there's a lot, there's a lot there. I mean, I, I was trying to think of an example of a novel that actually completely did away with etiquette and manners, um, or did anything kind of really subversive with them. And of course, kind of the only thing I could think of was A Clockwork Orange. Although, don't you think A Clockwork Orange is all about how that gang of youths is kind of their manners within the new society in which they're living. Yeah. And, and, and it's, it is so extreme precisely because it crashes through the, what we understand to be good manners, right? Mm. Like the way the Drugs behave is like the anti-manner <laughs> of manners. And then they create their own world of manners and violence and hyperviolent, ultraviolence. So yeah, I, I guess, is there a way in which actually you kind of strip things back and back and get to the heart of it and etiquette and manners really at the heart, you can't have a society without them because they are about social organization in one form or another. Totally. And the droogs would definitely be listening to their phones without headphones on the a crowded train. 100%. <laughs> and they would not be reading agony aunt columns and learning the errors of their ways that way or accessing their deeply troubled emotional core <laughs> through the soft advice of a lovely, a lovely human being at the end of a keyboard. No, exactly. And maybe things would have gone differently for them if they did. Yes. <laughs> All right. We will be back in a minute to give you our cultural recommendations. are back to talk to you about some of the stuff we've done lately that is not reading because we do do things that are not reading um, and we want to tell you about and listeners this is I think a literary friction first the first time in 10 years that both mine and Carrie have come up with the exact same <laughs> cultural recommendations as one another so you can know that what follows is like extra hard recommended um also <laughs> 
<laughs> we, we've pulled a couple of other things out of the bag just so that it's not only only two things. But Carrie, surprise me. Tell me what your first recommendation is. <laughs> are we merging into maybe each other? Maybe we're merging. I think maybe we are. Uh-oh. Okay. I mean, it's well, an honor, frankly. I was about to say the same thing. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, my first recommendation, Octavia, is the documentary All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. Um, directed by someone named Laura Poitras. And what an excellent choice, Carrie yes. Plitt. Excellent Thank choice. <laughs> um, this is a documentary about the life and the art of the artist Nan Golden, who I think is perhaps best known for her photographs of her friends and lovers in 1970s and 80s, Boston and New York, sort of counterculture. You'd probably know them if you saw them, um, many of which make up the slideshow, The Ballad of Sexual Dependency. But it's also about Golden's activism, particularly in regards to the Sackler family and holding them accountable for their role in pushing Oxycontin, um, which Golden herself became addicted to and subsequently became addicted to heroin. And gosh, it is so beautiful and it is so moving. And I think one of the reasons why it's so beautiful and it's so moving is that it contains so much without ever needing to have a message or to fit things neatly together. So it's it's about so many things, like making art. It's about Golden's childhood and her family and her friends, about like her drive to take photographs and make art. It's about activism. And these things all coexist together along with just the amazing, amazing images um, from throughout Golden's career. And she just lets us draw the connections ourselves, especially about how art relates to activism. Um, and I emerged just, I, I just loved it, but I also emerged so in awe of this woman who is so committed to both her art and to her politics and who has survived so much. And it took me out of myself. I, I just, yeah, I was completely gripped. What, what what did you think of it, Octavia? <laughs> <laughs> I agree. We agree with everything that you've just said. I think the fact that it gives such a powerful middle finger to anyone who says that activism is pointless, right? Like it, it's one of those artifacts that reveals the really deep apathy at the heart of that statement. And I left the cinema thinking, you know, the truth is that activism can be and is often hugely effective. And if more of us were moved to really put ourselves on the line like that, and not just sharing posts on Instagram or Twitter or whatever the fuck, but like actually using our physical presence to encourage change in that way and using our talents, using whatever skills we have, like Nan uses art, then I I do think things could look pretty different right now in the world. And it's a really important thing to hold on to. And as you said, like the film isn't bashing you over the head with that message, but it allows you to leave the film with that message, which I think is very, very skilled. And also, you know, I can't remember how old I was when I first saw The Ballad of Sexual Dependency. It was on a gallery here, maybe somewhere like the Whitechapel Gallery, definitely somewhere that was doing things a bit a bit more um, subversively than the major galleries. But I was in my teens, I was young, and it made such a massive impression on me because I'd never seen anything like it. I'd never seen photography that was so intimate because it was her life. It was not staged. It was not, she wasn't an outsider looking in. She was like in the frame, even though she's not always in the frame in, in body. And there's just that these images are just infused with such tenderness and such love. And 
love that is about chosen family as well as love that is about sex and and messiness and violence. Um, but really kinship, they're images of deep, profound kinship and friendship and community. And I kind of, I remember after seeing them, I sort of always thought that's what I want. How do I get it? That's what I want, that closeness. And so when I saw the movie, I was so pleased that the, that the photographs actually played a big role in the documentary. And as you say, alongside Nan's story with her activism and her story of living with addiction. Um, and, and really, I think, because I've been a fan of her work for, for so many years, I was extremely interested to learn more about her family life, her parents, the relationship between them, the relationship between her and her sister, and the context that it gives for her journey to becoming an artist and all that she was communicating through her work and her kind of personal circumstances. Um, it's kind of the story of uh, of an artist's development as much as it is the story of a woman and as much of it is the story of a scandal and of activism. And I think that's amazing. So if you're a Golden fan, obviously see it. You've probably already seen it. But even if you've never come across her work before and you don't know who she is, go and see it because it is just a wonderfully rich piece of filmmaking and storytelling. And it kind of manages to take in all of life, you know, this this collaboration between this artist and this filmmaker. So yeah, amazing. Agreed. <laughs> Agreed. Tick. Okay. What's your next one? Um, not as if I don't already know. <laughs> well, Octavia, my second recommendation is the um, six-part dramatization of Elena Ferrante's The Lying Life of Adults, which is on Netflix and directed by Eduardo de Angelis. And listeners will know that I love this novel. Um, we had a show about it. We interviewed uh, Ferrante's translator, Anne Goldstein. And it's a novel about the coming of age, basically, of a teenage girl in 1990s Naples. Um, and I don't think it's very easy to adapt something that's so internal, which is true of all of Ferrante's fiction. But I really liked how they've done it here. Um, the filmmaking itself is kind of brash and rebellious and a bit fractured. Um, and that really reflects the mind of Giovanna, who is starting to question her, her parents is starting to question what she's always been told. Some of the choices feel a little out there to me. I found the score very intrusive and so they have this like echoey line repeating that I thought was kind of dumb, but generally I'm really enjoying it. I haven't finished it yet. Um, and I am especially enjoying the performance of Valeria Golino as Vittoria, who's um, Giovanni's brash, kind of excommunicated aunt that she reforms a connection with. And it also made me start watching the adaptation of My Brilliant Friend, which is totally different in tone, but also really excellent. And I just got back from Naples and I'm bathing in uh, Ferrante Neapolitan uh, screen adaptations and loving it. Yeah, my brilliant friend. That's I'm so pleased you're watching it. It's, the whole thing it's is really amazing. good. Yeah, it's so good. I can't so, believe so I good. waited so long to watch it. I think I just I'm, was I'm worried surprised you waited. Good. No, it's so good. It's yeah, it's fantastic. In fact, um, maybe yeah. I like it a little bit better than this, even. Interesting. If I may. So I actually don't agree with you oh, on everything that you just said. I mean, I, like I love the show. I love the show, and I don't find the score intrusive at all. I think, and I love, I love how brash and out there it is. I love how rebellious it is. I think I'm primed for it because I feel like I've been watching quite a lot of Sorrentino lately. Mm -hmm. And it feels very much in that vein, in that kind of language where 
it's dealing in overstimulation sometimes and it ed- edges towards the surreal. But I find that the perfect medium for this story because it is a story about what it's like to be in that really heightened emotional state of the cusp of teenage understanding, right? And like when I think about how I was at that stage of life, like I was skinless. You're trying to take in so much. You're trying to understand so much about the world. Everything feels kind of endlessly fascinating, but also frustratingly mysterious and like just out of your reach, but like almost there and technicolor everything. Um, And I think that this adaptation is a really great example of when another, another artist takes literature and goes, well, I can't replicate that. So I'm going to make something that sits alongside it. That's not trying to be a replication of it, but it's trying, I'm going to use what, what I'm a specialist in, in my medium to offer something that is, uh, you know, has kinship with the original, but isn't trying to replicate it. Um, and that's what I absolutely love about it. Mm-hmm. And I also have to just take a moment to talk about the sets because the sets are incredible in this show. Honestly, incredible. Like the amazing, mad, apartment that that she and her her sort of wealthy parents live in which is just full of the kind of italian design from the 80s and 90s that's actually having a real resurgence at the moment um lots of shiny wood and all of the matching light fittings and it's very it's just so it's so 90s it's like the most incredible period piece and there's this scene where she's like learning how to skateboard or no she's learning how to break dance sorry like um on this road that leads to nowhere. And it's all so atmospheric and amazing. And yeah, it made me want to be in Naples in the nineties. Um, yeah, I think brilliant. And I think if you haven't read the Ferrante, it won't ruin it for you. It won't like, don't worry about that. Just watch it. Cause it's a fantastic show. I agree. You don't need to know the source text at all. And it might be no. more fun not to know the source text in some ways. Yeah, and it won't ruin the source text for you if you then want to read it yeah. later. It's not one of those um, kinds of adaptations. Seeing as we have had a total consensus in this episode, is there one other thing you want to shout out so we can give people something else? Sure. Um, very quickly, if you're not watching it, I think it's the most popular show in the world right now. But The Last of Us is genuinely great um, on HBO. It's kind of a zombie show, but I'm not a zombie person. And it's really a human show. It's really a post-apocalyptic show. It's really a great storytelling show with some some pretty gross fungusy bits that you'll need to get past if you're grossed out by those things, which I am. But I I love it. And I've really been enjoying watching it, but also just engaging with the conversation around it. Um, so yeah, The Last of Us comes two thumbs up from me. How about you? I'm excited to watch it. We've been waiting. John and I have been waiting till we can watch it together because he played the game. So yes. he has a totally different insight into it than than I do. Um, mine is an exhibition that I caught in Paris. So for any of our listeners in Paris um, or anyone who's going to be passing through Paris in the next few months, it's called Avant l'Orage, which means before the storm. And it's at the Bourse de Commerce, which is the, the Pinot collection. And I'd never been there before. First of all, the building is unbelievable. Um, it's near Léal and it used to be the uh, wheat trading store. It's got an extremely racist uh, frieze painted around the top under the dome, which has all four corners of the world coming together um, to trade gloriously. But it, it's quite fascinating to see. And the space is just this incredible light-filled room. And the exhibition is is going to be sort of shifting and changing over the next few months. 
with a series of vast installations and a bunch of video work, textiles, paintings, basically a, a very interesting contemporary collection. And I was very energized by it. As an, I, I won't describe any of it because it's not very good to listen to, but go if you can. Um, I got to see one of my favorite Judy Chicago videos, which is one of the, the smoke series where she's in the desert. And that made me very happy. But yeah, there's a lot there for everybody. Um, and apparently the restaurant is good too. There you go. Oh, Heard it here maybe first. I'll take my parents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my God, you should definitely, you should definitely all go. So I think we've come to the end. How do we say a very polite goodbye, Carrie, if we're doing an, this etiquette show? Thank you for being here with us, listeners. We appreciate everything you do for us. And we're just, we're just so thankful. Thank you. <laughs> Fuck you very much. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you soon. 